Hey, everybody. Welcome to my channel and podcast. I am Allison, and this is Devotional Hearts. And today I have a very special guest. His name is Brother Augustine. He is an author and an ortho bro. He's actually quite well known in the Orthodox community. So I'm so, so happy that he agreed to do this interview with me, especially being that I don't have any other interviews on my channel yet, but I will. I have um, a whole bunch of amazing people coming up. So um, be sure to like and subscribe to my channel. So um, this is the book that um, Brother Augustine, aka Michael Whitcoff, wrote. It's called On the Masons and Their Lies. And on the back, it says about the author, about the author after leaving Freemasonry to follow Christ, Michael joined the Orthodox Church and wrote on the Masons and their lies to expose the fraternity's opposition to the gospel. So I bought this book about three months ago, and I loved it. And what I really loved about it is that it's not just exposing Freemasonry, it's actually a, like a handbook for anybody interested in Orthodoxy, because it really breaks down the mindset and um, how Freemasonry is in direct opposition to the Orthodox life. And um, so without further ado, welcome Brother Augustine. And I'm going to mostly give the floor to you today. I have a few questions for you, but um, I really want my audience to get to know you and how you even got into writing this book. So welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, if whatever whatever you want to ask, if you give me a question, I'll 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 go for as long as I can on it and okay. touch on all the related topics if possible. Well, first, I would I don't know that much about the saints yet. I'm I'm new to Orthodoxy, and um, I I am curious about the the name Saint Augustine. And I read something online. I don't know if this is a Catholic thing or Orthodox, but it said something about today for the next few days is like um, our feast days for him, or is that is that correct? Yeah, so so I'll give you kind of a, a, an overarching background of, of what a saint is and why you couldn't tell if it was Orthodox or Catholic. And yes, his feast day is coming up soon, I believe. So basically I'll do like a little intro to Christian history. So the church was planted on the day of Pentecost, right? Which we see in the book of Acts is where the Holy Spirit comes down and thousands of people are baptized into the church. That's kind of traditionally thought of as the day the church began. So from that point for just over a thousand years, uh, there was only one group called the church, one, one visible institutional organizational body, uh, the body of Christ, the church, of course, Protestants will, will say that there was an invisible church of all saved believers, regardless of what they believe, but that's not how the apostles or their students or any of their students understood what the church is. It always meant where the bishop is, that's where the priest is. So if there's a group of people not being overseen uh, by a bishop, an apostolically succeeded bishop, meaning someone who was ordained by an apostle directly, or someone that was ordained in that line of succession. If there was no bishop, there was no church there. So a group could study the Bible, they could call themselves a church. Um, and for us, I think as Orthodox, we would refer to that as a Bible study, but it wouldn't be part of that one group called the church for the first thousand years uh, that we call the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, Catholic meaning universal. So St. Augustine lived in the late fourth, early fifth century 
meaning he was part of the church before it split after a thousand years into Eastern Orthodoxy on one side and Roman Catholicism on the other. So because he is a saint, and I'll get to that in a second, uh, before that split, he's considered a saint by both churches. So somebody who that who was a saint in that first thousand years is venerated or, or honored and, and respected as a saint by both Catholics and Orthodox. Uh, but for example, somebody in Rome after that split would not be a saint for the Eastern Orthodox, even if they're a saint for Roman Catholics. And then 500 years after that big split, then the Protestants split off from the, from the Catholics. And now there's 40,000 different versions of Protestantism. Uh, but for the Orthodox, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, it still exists today, just like it did 2000 years ago. It's the same group. Uh, we can, all of our priests understand what apostle their, their lineage came from, their succession came from. And so for us, a saint is somebody that has lived a godly life and been recognized by the church and upheld by the church, which is to say upheld by God and recognized by God as a really good role model, even if they weren't right about every single thing they said. Like Augustine had some things he said that were not accepted by the church, but the way that he lived his life of repentance and of preaching and teaching and studying the scriptures and, and church history and everything, uh, the church has upheld him, which again is to say God has upheld him as an example of someone to pattern your life on. Now, sometimes people hear me say something like that, or they'll hear someone else say something like that, and say, but what about the people that are not called saints by the church? So to, to help those people kind of understand what it means, we recognize that there are countless saints that have not that don't have feast days that don't have icons that aren't canonized with with names and titles like saint augustine or the blessed saint augustine some have the great like saint saint athanasius the great saint anthony the great or uh, emperor saint constantine the great for example so we are not saying those are the only people who are with god eternally not not by a long shot we even have a special day where we recognize all the saints all the saints of the church, those whose names we know and those whose names we do not know. So St. Augustine is kind of controversial in the Orthodox world because he did say some things that were not accepted by the church and because it was a lot of his ideas that some Protestants, specifically John Calvin, misunderstood in the first place and then went even deeper into error with. So Father Seraphim Rose, an Orthodox priest who will probably be canonized as a saint, if I had to guess, uh, wrote a really good book called The Blessed St. Augustine, uh, according to the Orthodox Church. I don't think that second half is the exact right title, but oh, it's The Place of Blessed Augustine in the Orthodox Church, that's what it's called, where he goes through Augustine's errors that were not accepted, as well as all the amazing things that he got right. And so I chose him as my patron saint, meaning the saint with which I specifically identify as a similar person that I resonate with their story and their life, because he wrote an amazing book called Confessions towards the very end of his life as the uh, Vandals were, were invading Carthage, or, or Hippo rather, where he was the bishop there, uh, Augustine of Hippo. Uh, so the city got destroyed and everything. And as, as they were kind of advancing towards his city, uh, he decided to write this account of his life called Confessions, which in a certain sense is actually the first autobiography, uh, period as a literary form as someone going through their whole life talking about all of their sins and their errors and the things they got wrong and then how how their life kind of changed this is very unique in the orthodox world because most saints probably 99 percent, if not more that have written spiritual teachings 
will tell you the tactics and techniques that are helpful in overcoming sin, but they're not very forthcoming about what they themselves have dealt with or struggled with, uh, which is, it's not generally encouraged to do that sort of thing. I do it because I find people resonate with it and it helps them feel okay with the vulnerability of acknowledging their faults and errors. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's very, very rare for someone, especially of that stature, to say, here's all the things I've ever done wrong in my life uh, on paper for the rest of time, right? For everyone to know about. So when I read Confessions, uh, we had a similar background in some regards, and I just immediately sort of knew uh, this is this is my guy. And so usually when you become uh, baptized into the Orthodox Church, uh, you will have a patron saint, which is why we're told to study the saints, read the lives of the saints, and kind of see who is similar to us that we want to ask them to pray for us specifically, because that's what that's what it is, venerating saints. You know, we call it praying to saints. Really, it's asking for them to pray for us or intercede for us. Uh, because we believe in the gospel, we believe that when somebody dies in a in a after having lived a Christly life, that their body dies, but their soul is with God. That they're still just as much alive as they were before. Actually, much more alive in a certain sense. And so Protestants will sometimes not like this idea very much. But then, if you look at the Transfiguration uh, feast that we just celebrated a couple weeks ago, when Jesus takes the apostles up on Mount Tabor, Moses and Elijah, who are long dead, appear there with him. They appear there to the apostles. That are there uh, interacting with Jesus. So we see that just because someone's body is dead does not mean their soul is dead. The soul is very much alive and with God. Um, so when we ask for them to pray for us, it's not it's not some kind of necromancy, as I've sometimes heard Protestants say. It's somebody that's alive and righteous and close to God, which the Bible tells us the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. So that's what a saint is. That's what a patron saint is. And that's how I settled on the great St. Augustine of Hippo. Wow, that's awesome. And you touched on a few points that I was going to be asking you about in this interview, because um, personally, you know, when I told one of my friends, a Christian friend that I'm converting to orthodoxy, he said, oh, well, you know, you, all you're doing is going from one cult to another, because he knew I had been involved in new age type stuff. And um, mm -hmm. So he, he's one of these many Christians who believes that in the Orthodox Church, and we have the beautiful icons all around the church, and we venerate them. It's considered by some people to be actually worshiping them, and then that gets turned into like, oh, well, see, you're just a pagan. You're just doing pagan right. worship now. <laughs> so mm. how, how have you responded to people that I'm sure somebody in your past has said something similar, like, oh, you're okay. So you're just a pagan if you're an Orthodox Christian. Yeah. I mean, if by my past, you mean yesterday when I was being attacked in this exact way on YouTube, oh, no. then yes, in my no. past, <laughs> uh, it's okay. All, all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is the promise Christ gave to us. Right. It's a sign you're on the right path. So what an idol was in the pagan world was a statue or a picture that they believed a demon lived inside of, and they were usually correct. They would invoke a spirit or a demon or a fallen angel into a physical object and then bow down to it and worship it and uh, offer it food and stuff like that because they were, they were worshiping the creature that lived inside the object. That is absolutely not what icons are. Mm -hmm. For us, icons are windows into heaven, so to speak. Uh, we are we are seeing the souls that are with God. We are looking at them with our eyes because what we perceive with our senses deeply affects our what's called the noose in orthodoxy, our spiritual organ, our spiritual sense. So we're always going to be uh, looking at something 
tasting something, touching something, feeling something. So the trick is to make sure that all that sensory input is something that's godly, right? It's something that is edifying, that is holy. Like I have an icon right here of St. Nectarios, the wonder worker. It's one of my favorite icons. I actually got this from Greece. Wow, beautiful. Yeah, I got this after I saw the dramatized account of his life called Man of God at the Greek Film Festival. I mean, I watched it on TV, but it was filmed at the Greek Film Festival or shown there rather. So we, we look at these people's lives. And when we look at their pictures, first of all, it's like our family photo album, right? This is our family. Well, by, by all taking communion together, being part of the same body of Christ, we literally become part of the same family. I mean, there's there's something physical and literal and metaphorical or metaphysical rather that we all share. We all partake of one cup, one body, one blood of Christ. So even our bodies are becoming one thing in a certain sense. So this is our, our family photo album. So if someone's going to say that kissing an icon of a saint is idolatry, well, then they're not allowed to look at any more pictures of their grandma because that's idolatry too, right? right. So we, we look at these saints and yes, we do cross ourselves in front of them. We we bow down or, or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The matanya, the kind of prostration. We prostrate, we'll kiss it as a show of respect and recognition that this is somebody that made it whose life is good for us to pattern our lives on, for us to read about and learn about, yeah. and that they're close to God and they're with God. We do not believe that the soul of the person lives inside the picture uh, that's there. We're not offering food to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the book of Revelation, which is a uh, liturgical prophecy, if you will, according to Father, Pat uh, Father Patrick Henry Reardon, what you're seeing in John's vision is the liturgy taking place in heaven all the time, that on Sundays when we are at the divine liturgy, we are seeing kind of a physical material version of that. It's kind of a mirror of that. So it's when there, there becomes this bridge between heaven and earth, and we step into this thing that is eternally taking place in heaven. Mm -hmm. And we see in Revelation that the, the angels have these golden bowls filled with the incense, which it tells us are the prayers of the saints. Mm -hmm. So the prayers that we send up, the prayers that they pray for us, these are what the angels bring directly to God on his throne in the eternal liturgy that's always taking place in heaven. That's what St. John is describing when he's uh, taken away, slain in the spirit, seeing in the spirit, whatnot, and when he wrote that book. So there's nothing, there's no worship of this, right? There's even different words for uh, what we're doing towards the saints. For example, the word uh, for veneration is dulia. The word, so we venerate Mary a little bit differently because she's unique among the saints because no other saint physically carried God within them, right? She carried, she gave birth to Christ, gave birth to God. That's unique. No other saint did that. So we venerate her a little bit higher than the rest of the saints. We call it hyperdulia. But the word for worship is latria. We do not worship Mary. We do not worship saints. We venerate or hyper-venerate them in Mary's case. But what we, our attitude towards them should never approach our attitude towards God. Right. Um, now, some people will, will see us prostrating and kissing and they'll think that's what we're doing. Um, so I often say to people, orthodoxy is not something you can understand from the outside just by looking at it. Um, it's barely something you can understand being inside of it, right? It is a mystery. It's beyond what we can really communicate and comprehend with our limited rational minds. Uh, but if you ask an orthodox person, we are not worshiping them in the sense that we are worshiping God at all, even if it, what we're doing with our body might look kind of similar on the outside. Right. Beautiful. Yeah, I would love to do, if I can ever have you back on the show, I would love to do an entire hour just talking about the liturgy because it's so deep and just Orthodox Christianity in general, it's 
this vast, you know, the more I learn about it, the more I see that there is just so much beauty and just this, um, I can't even describe it with words, but it's just so deep and it's, it touches me so deeply too. And before I was Christian, I didn't even know that there was something like this that could be, and, and it's not about knowledge. I mean, my, the bookstore at my parish is huge and I would love to read every single thing. And it, it's not like when I was more Gnostically minded that, that was when I wanted to read every, you know, I was a voracious reader because I wanted to fill my head with knowledge. Mm. And this is completely different. This is like every book I read just opens my heart more. Um, I become closer with God, you know, my relationship with all of, all of it just gets deeper instead. Oh, and this reminds me of something you said in one of your streams about the, the, snake eating its own tail and how that's a symbol in Gnosticism. And maybe it's, it's really saying that in that, on that path, you're just constantly cycling and you're never really getting anywhere. I mean, you said it so much, so much better. So maybe I'll let you talk a little bit about Gnosticism and knowledge versus the noose and maybe speak a little bit more about that and the process of repentance and um, just a lifestyle of orthodoxy versus just like a belief system that some people think maybe it's just a way you think or believe or have faith in something, but it's actually really this amazing lifestyle. Sure, sure. So I actually forgot that I had... uh, drawn that analogy until you brought it up. So thank you for reminding me. Yeah, the idea of the Ouroboros, you know, the cycles of reincarnation or whatever, I said, I think this is just a sign that when you're an occultist, you're just chasing your own tail, spinning in circles and never getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think there is some truth to that. Yes. Um, I think that the most common affliction for the Orthodox is the amount of books that we all want to read because, <laughs> I mean, there's 2,000 years of stuff to read. Yeah. A huge amount of it is still not even translated into English. Yeah. And and this is why, I mean, before I was Christian, I didn't even know that Orthodoxy existed. I thought there was just Christian and Catholic was how right. I would have perceived it to myself. Yeah. All this stuff is just now starting to get translated into English, really just in the last 50 or 60 years for the most part. So now that people can buy this stuff from 2000 years ago on Amazon, delivered to your door the next day. And I mean, so many of the books like this one are just not that long. The Unity of Christ by St. Cyril of Alexandria, which I used in my video refuting Jesse Lee Peterson's heresies. Uh, The books are often not very long. And so you want to read them. And then everything you read leads to a deeper understanding that leads you to want to read about something else. There's all kinds of books about the divine liturgy. Um, I should put a list together at some point of good books on the actual liturgy uh, because it's very important. Now, Gnosticism is started in the Garden of Eden, right? When Satan uh, said, did God really say, you know, surely you shall not die, giving her the truth of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, which the church fathers viewed as basically something that if Adam and Eve had grown in God and stayed in communion with him properly, they would have eventually matured to a place where they would have had access to the, to, to knowledge, uh, but they kind of wanted the shortcut and they wanted to, to obtain it by disobedience to God, okay. uh, which is how every Gnostic group works. It's shortcuts, it's magic, it's, you know, what, what shape do I use with what color candle while I invoke what uh, planetary or metal spirit, you know, the spirit of lead and Jupiter and this and that. Uh, because they want to obtain something by disobeying God, who specifically says in the Old Testament, especially not to do any of this stuff, because he hates all of this stuff. 
and the knowledge that you're obtaining in Gnosticism, which I was very deeply into. I was a Freemason, obviously. I was in, uh, I was a Rosicrucian. I was a member of the order called Amork, which I left to become a Masonic Rosicrucian, which most people don't even know exists, including most Masons don't know actually exists. A group called SRICF in America, and I think SRIA in uh, in England. Um, the knowledge that you're getting is this kind of false light of basically possessing yourself by degrees. So we see in the books of Enoch, which even though they're not canonical, we see quoted in the scriptures, this was a very important set of documents to the ancient Jews and the apostles, um, that it's fallen angels that taught human beings knowledge of a lot of things, of warfare and making weapons and chemicals and metallurgy and all this stuff. So when we engage in Gnostic things, um, if we're not just LARPing, like if we're serious about it, like I was, what's happening is you're slowly getting kind of more and more possessed by fallen angels or, or demons, which are not necessarily always the same thing. Demons can be uh, spirits of dead people, according to uh, Father Stephen Damick, uh, and no, not Andrew, not Stephen Damick, Father Stephen DeYoung's book, Religion of the Apostles, which is an incredible book. Um, so we're possessing ourselves with wicked spirits, whether they're fallen angels or the spirits of dead wicked people. And they're bringing knowledge to us that is not for us to have and we're not supposed to have and it degrades our souls and corrupts our souls um, and you know that this is true because narcissism requires nothing of you morally right you don't have to stop doing drugs you don't have to stop fornicating you don't have to stop doing any anything you don't have to correct your behavior at all you just have this shortcut to this evil wicked knowledge and then you get to feel better than everyone and feel smarter than everyone. Like you have some kind of secret knowledge that they're just too dumb or too mundane or too plebeian to understand. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the appeal of Gnosticism is that you get to feel better than other people. Right. It inflames your pride while pretending to offer you some kind of secret. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Freemasonry is liturgical, as you know, if you've read my book, it involves rituals, scripted rituals with characters walking in deacons and the Bible reading at some point at some points walking around the room. I mean, every word of each ritual is, is scripted. It is a liturgical thing. I had never seen anything like that before. i had also never heard the New Testament. Ironically, I heard the New Testament for the very first time in my life in a Masonic Lodge. I saw a liturgy or liturgical ritual for the first time in a Masonic Lodge and didn't realize until I became Orthodox that all of it is just a mockery of Orthodoxy, right? It's, it is an upside down liturgy. You know, you have your worshipful master in the East, which is where the light comes from. So they're, they're mocking Christianity basically is what they're doing. And throughout all of these different groups and experiences, you know, I always had, I was a perennialist. Uh, you know, I believe that Christ was either Christ consciousness or one of many ascended masters and all this kind of silly nonsense that you hear about in the, in the new age world, as I'm sure you're well familiar with. Yes, I am familiar. Uh, yeah. And so it took a long time for me to really understand, oh, this is, that's not what this is. This is a person, a specific person, a divine person that became man took on human nature for us, showed us the way, the way, the truth, and the life, and then died and was resurrected. When the New Age will talk about how that's symbolic of our own internal resurrection, which is not entirely wrong, but they're rejecting the historicity, the idea that, that he actually came and walked around too. So yes, we are internally regenerated and resurrected. That's all true, but you can't have that apart from the actual death and resurrection of the person, Jesus Christ, coming to earth, walking around in a physical body like the apostles all talk about. Um, you can't separate those things. So they're trying to ape certain ideas from Christianity, like the word Christ, for example. And the, the, the interesting thing is that you can find people talking about this 2,000 years ago, refuting heretics and Gnostics. St. Irenaeus talks about this. St. Jerome talks about this. He says they have the name of Christ on their lips to pull you away from him. 
says they speak light only to lead to darkness because if they openly preached antichrist, you wouldn't listen to them. So they tell you Christ, they tell you light. Freemasonry is all about the search for light and the lost word, but only to lead you to darkness because that makes it more seductive and more, uh, more effective in pulling you away from the true path. So I wrote that book. I actually think I have the, the last copy in my possession of it right here on my desk. Because I, when I was at the Montana event, I was signing them and giving them out and stuff. Um, when I wrote that book, I was actually a Protestant. So I went from all that to Protestant first, having never heard of Orthodoxy. And then I got kind of fed up and disillusioned with Protestantism and then started looking into Orthodoxy. And that's kind of where everything clicked. And then I rewrote the book from an Orthodox perspective, like filling it with church father quotes and stuff that I obviously had no idea about in Protestantism. Because in Protestantism, everyone's just kind of rehashing it all for themselves for the very first time because they have no roots in history, right? How could they know what heresies have been dealt with in the third century, fourth century, fifth century? They haven't read it because they're not aware that it exists. Mm -hmm. The Protestant reformers, the original ones of the 16th century, they knew it existed. They read it constantly. They wrote books about it. Modern Protestants or evangelicals or non-denominational Christians that might not even know what the word Protestant is. Some of these people have never even heard the word Protestant. They're just Christian, right? Obviously, they don't know. They don't have this treasure chest, this storehouse of 2,000 years of wisdom that allows us to know what Christianity is and has always taught, what heresies have already come up and been dealt with. And so when you go through it, you realize, like I say in that book, every heresy in the world today was already addressed at least 1,700 years ago. There, there's nothing that Satan has come up with in that time. All he does is kind of repackage these heresies and give them a new shiny paint job, right? He has a new puppet on stage speaking the heresy. Um, and then if you're not well-grounded in Christian history, you don't know what's being said. You can't identify it. You can't say, oh, that's Nestorianism. Oh, that's Arianism, right? So there's no way to discern really uh, what what's already been dealt with. And so these are some of the, the many benefits of being Orthodox is that you have a uh, a religion that's well rooted in history. You know, you said someone called it a cult. If they said that to me, I would say maybe, but at least it's the right cult. You know, we do <laughs> well, have a leader. We do have rituals. That part's the, true. You know? The other thing about him is I had asked him if he'd ever read the church fathers or, you know, what I wanted to know what historical uh, writings he was, he had been exposed to and he hadn't, he hadn't read anything. Yeah. And, yeah. and you, you touched on something that I wanted to ask you a little bit later. And there are a couple, I mean, you said so many things that I want to go back to, but I've read some statistics about um, in the U S how many Protestants have converted. And I think in the seventies, there was a huge migration of like thousands mm -hmm. of them. And some of them even started my parish. And, mm -hmm. um, but I read that a lot of the priests that are priests today at one time, they came from a different denomination and they were actually ministers, a lot of them. And so um, what kind of comments do you have about that? Like, what were they, what did, what were they lacking in their Protestant life? And what do you think it, it was that might've brought them to Orthodoxy? I, it's been my experience that our best homilists, meaning the people that give the most powerful sermons tend to have been Protestant pastors before they became Orthodox priests, because I don't think that our seminaries focus on effective speaking as much as Protestant seminaries do. You know, they spend tons of time, tens of hours, if not hundreds of hours, sharpening their rhetoric, their speaking skills, their oratory, learning how do you give a powerful sermon. 
I'm not sure our seminaries are teaching that because there's I've noticed a difference, at least in the uh, the people that I've been around, like Father Josiah Trenum, one of our most well-known traditionalist priests, incredible work on YouTube and on his website, Patristic Nectar. One of my one of my favorite human beings, frankly, Orthodox or not, priest or not, but just one of my favorite people in general. He was a Presbyterian minister beforehand. So a, a Scottish Calvinist, a Presbyterian. Uh, I know my my priest, I think, was Lutheran before, if I'm not mistaken. And what a lot of them had was that they had the their hearts were in the right place, right? They had the zeal for Christ and for knowledge and for holiness, and their love of God was real, their love of the scriptures was real. What they were missing was the fact that the church, Christ, and the apostles planted still exists. And that you can just go join it by baptism today, the same way they did 2,000 years ago on Pentecost, and that Christ planted this, excuse me, this one specific group said, this is the body, this is my body. And for us, that means more than just kind of a, a congregation or a group, right? Like we say, a body of people or a body, like a body of board directors or CEOs or whatever. We mean it physically. So for us, the church is the extension of the incarnation throughout the ages. Christ promised the apostles he would never leave them. He would be with them until the end of the ages. So for us, there's a spiritual dimension to that, of course. And there's also the physical dimension of taking Holy Communion, which is his real body and his real blood. So his body, he, he is incarnating in us constantly if we are, of course, seeking him and, and living uh, a godly life. And you simply can't have that as a Protestant. You can love God. You can love the scriptures. You can love holiness. You can hate sin. But what you can't have is the actual body and blood of our Lord and Savior mm -hmm. inside of you growing uh, through that grace that comes with the sacraments, uh, which if you look through Christian history has always been uh, a fundamental part of it. I mean, there's no, there is no Christianity apart from the church because the church is Christ's body. Now, the main difference, I would say, I mean, there's many differences between Protestants and Orthodox, especially depending on which of the 40,000 versions of it you're looking at. Yeah. So they have a presupposition, meaning an assumed fundamental part of their worldview, even if they haven't articulated it, they are presupposing that the church is built on top of the Bible. So they'll look at the Bible and say, well, how do I start a ministry based on what I'm reading? That's their presupposition. The reality is the church existed but long before the Bible was written, long before it was put together, long before it was canonized. I mean, the Revelation, the book of Revelation was not even universally accepted until 700 years after it was written. You know, in the beginning, first Clement, some people wanted to be in scripture. It was a writing of, I want to say, the third bishop of Rome, which you can still find and read today. Incredible epistle. Um, it sounds like biblical writing, but since he's not an apostle, it wasn't. Good. That's one of the criteria. But the church existed long before the Bible. So the Bible is written by the church to a practicing church, canonized by the church, compiled by the church. And of course, until the creation of the printing press, Everyone didn't have a little Bible that they were carrying around. So the, where you would hear scripture, which was the exhortations of the apostles, was in church. You would go to the church after having been baptized into it. You would hear the priest or bishop read from these letters. And then at the end, you would take communion if you were baptized, if you were illuminated, if you were no longer a catechumen. So that's what the Bible was for. It was to be read to the church on Sundays. It, there, there's no idea. I mean, you, I've read through probably thousands of hours by this point of church father writings, mm -hmm. there's never even, nobody even considers that you could start a church based on the Bible. That's not even something that's acknowledged as a possibility. They couldn't have even perceived this. Like, why would anyone believe that? It was insane to them. It would have been insane if you brought it up to them to a degree that again, 
they just never even talked about it because nobody ever believed it that way. And I think as Protestants, you can have a real love for God in the scriptures. Absolutely. I, I recognize the zeal is real. I recognize the intention is, is positive. But the whole presupposition has to be corrected, that the church is built on the Bible instead of the Bible being a treasure of the church. And then once you join the church, everything makes so much more sense. Yeah. You, I once heard orthodoxy described as all the verses that you missed which I think is really beautiful. Like for example, Revelation, like we were talking about earlier, you have no idea what's going on with the, with the incense and the golden bowls and the throne. But then you go to liturgy, you go, oh, it's this. Mm -hmm. You don't know what that is as a, as a Protestant. You think it's cryptic, enigmatic symbols. Who knows what all this means? It's such a puzzle. It's not really that much of a puzzle. It's a liturgy taking place in heaven. But if you don't have access to the liturgy, how could you possibly know that? Or, or when in John 6, Christ is talking about he who does not eat my body and drink my, my blood has no life in him. Well, what does that mean if you're not taking communion? They just kind of glaze, their eyes glaze over that verse, right? right? Yeah, I've heard that that's one of the main verses that Protestants conveniently ignore when you're talking yeah, about like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, so, I, but I want to get back a little bit to your book and your experience with Freemasonry. Um, you had said something about how they are, um, well, the word I use is inverting. I can't remember the word you use, but- um, I think it's, it's like that a, word. It's like an inversion and a lot of the occult and um, mysticism and that kind of stuff. They take the truth and invert it. And, you know, I I was a victim of it in a way for, for so, so long. And I'm just so um, grateful that I had the, the eyes to start seeing that I had been deceived. And then I had to unlearn, you know, unlearning everything was a long, long process. And I think that's why it took me so long to start this channel too, because I've really been spending the last year unraveling and unlearning and, and reading the Bible and, um, getting myself into the truth. So um, can you talk a little bit more? Um, I don't want you to give a whole rundown of your book because I want people to read it for themselves, but um, just up, especially about the issue of pride versus humility, because that was a huge thing for me too, was um, when I started my path of Christianity, it was a lot of realizing how prideful I had been and um, being more committed to humility and the truth at all costs. And um, I'm just going to let you kind of go from there on that topic. Sure. So Masonry is basically Kabbalah. Um, you know, Jay Dyer has, as he pointed out in his debate review of my debate with Marty Leeds, uh, Masonry likes to present itself as very cryptic, enigmatic, special, secretive, and mysterious. Uh, but really, it's just Kabbalah, which is sort of the root of all the occult groups, right? And which they'll say is the root of all religion, because they're lying. Uh, and Kabbalah is just Plato. It's Platonism, but using Hebrew, basically. It's, it's Plato speaking Hebrew is what Kabbalah is. Um, so it's they, they present it as mysterious because they want to trigger that sense of pride of, oh, I want to know more than other people know. I want to have the secrets, the mysteries of the universe, whatever. So they're appealing to that. And then, of course, you see all the celebrities and stuff that are like flashing their occult signs. Like, ooh, I want whatever power these people have. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it kills your soul, though. Ultimately, that's that's what all this does. That's that's the purpose of Satan is to destroy you right. um, because he is eternal, eternally condemned. Him and the demons cannot be saved. 
we, despite our fallen state, can be saved. And that makes Satan very, very angry. Now, his main um, sin was pride, which the church has traditionally taught is the mother of all the other sins. This humility, the church has traditionally taught, is the mother of all the virtues. Because if you are really humble, it's very hard for Satan to attack you with thoughts of greed or lust or pride or power lust or any of the other major sins because you think of yourself as so unworthy of having any of those things anyway that you don't you don't want them. You think you don't deserve them because really you don't. Um, so I've been reading this amazing book called Monastic Wisdom, which is the letters of St. Joseph the Hesychast, a recently canonized saint, um, a monk on Mount Athos whose student uh, Elder Ephraim, who's probably also going to be canonized, then came to America and founded 18 monasteries in the style of, of Mount Athos. So those are all over the country now. Um, and then he was the abbot at St. Anthony's Monastery in, near Florence, Arizona, until he passed away last year. So we have like this one generation removed from this Athenite saint. And St. Joseph, in that book, he's writing about, uh, you've heard the phrase, know thyself, right, as a New Ager? Yeah. So in the pagan sense, know thyself was something Pythagoras taught that really meant learn about your past lives and where you came from, which for us is, of course, silly nonsense. So in, in St. Joseph, the Hezekiah's version of know thyself, what it means is remembering where you came from and what you are based on Genesis, which is mud. We're dirt. Mm. We're literally dirt that God breathed the living spirit into. Right. So when you, when you keep that in mind all the time, like I'm just clay, I'm mud, that God breathed this life into and can take it away at any time. We're literally nothing without God. I mean, if he were to turn his back on us, we would just cease to exist. Mm -hmm. When we remember that, we're literally just mud. Um, that's the kind of humility that can often stop you from falling into other sins. And um, the more the more zealously you seek Christ, the, the harder the devil will ramp up his temptations or persecutions of you. And traditionally, the church has always taught that humility is the, the best safeguard against all that stuff, which is why we're always saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, when I was first looking into orthodoxy, I thought, don't they know that vain repetitions are evil? The Bible says not to do that. And if you're doing it as a vain repetition, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. It's not supposed to be just this blabbering while your mind is somewhere else and your heart is somewhere else, mm -hmm. which St. Joseph talks about in that book as well. Lord Jesus Christ, let's talk about the Jesus prayer because it's so yeah. relevant to this topic. So when we say, well, we'll take it in, in each of the four sections here. So when we say Lord Jesus Christ, we're acknowledging a Lord. There's somebody above us. We're saying, I am not my Lord. I am not the Lord of anything, right? Except my own sin and filth. That we're pretty good at, at, at commanding. Uh, but we're saying Lord Jesus Christ as acknowledging Christ as Lord. That's very, very important for our humility. We're saying, have mercy on me recognizing that there's nothing we can do to earn salvation or virtue, that it's all him. Like it is entirely up to him who's saved and who isn't. Now he can look at our difficult work and our struggles and our labors to try and attain virtue and reward that with salvation because he sees us trying so hard, but it's not like those actions somehow earn. It's not like we put, you know, three prostration, three prostrations in the salvation machine and we get a salvation token right. out of it. We don't believe that at all. Right. So we have Lord Jesus Christ, Oh, son of God, I forgot that part. So we're acknowledging correct theology as well, which is very important for, for our salvation. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. We end it with a sinner, meaning that is how we identify is as a sinner, right? Our culture is full of ideas for how you should identify your sexual identity, your racial identity, your this, your that. Well, our identity is 
is that we're a sinner. Mm -hmm. Now, we're also made uh, uh, wonderfully and beautifully made, or whatever that verse is. We are made in God's image and likeness. But here in our in our flesh, we are also sinners. Right. And so as long as we're keeping that, that we're both sinners and also loved by God, as long as that's the core of our identity, well, we're first of all, we're going to avoid a lot of the extra nonsense that people are fighting about. And that's going to keep us uh, from falling into the temptations and traps of the world. Like, why are we going to pursue wealth and power and, and promiscuous sex and all this? Why are we going to bother pursuing that if we understand we have a Lord above us who is entirely... Uh, sovereign over our salvation and our mercy, and that's what we're seeking. Well, why are we going to want? Why would we want to go partake in things that are going to stop us from getting that right? Because so, when we say Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just lip service. It means we're studying Him, the Scriptures and the Saints. We're talking about Him. We're meditating on Him. Mm -hmm. We're trying to be as much like Him as we can. So yeah. it's incredible how much content is packed into that one little Jesus prayer. Uh, but when we pray it faithfully, I mean, I, I tried to say. I think I said it for forty straight minutes the other day. Um, um, and I, I would like to say it all day, if possible. Mm -hmm. You have to remember to force ourselves sometime at the beginning, according to St. Joseph. That one little prayer contains so much theology and content and humility that that alone can really safeguard us from a lot of these sins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when I before I was Christian, I never would even consider the idea that I might be a sinner. I mean, it was like, what, me? a sinner, right. not me, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and now it's just like, yeah, we, we all sin all the time and <laughs> being repentant is not a bad thing. It's like mm -hmm. so freeing. It's so liberating. It's healing. And it's, it, and that, and I love what you're saying about, um, and you know, in my experience, all, not all, a lot of the things that were pulling me into the world back before I was Christian, it, I didn't have to deny myself or feel like, oh, well, I really want to do that, but I can't do that anymore. And I'm not saying this in a prideful way. I'm just saying that as my focus became truth and Christ, I just didn't have time or energy for some of the things that I, you know, like gossiping or um, mm. shopping, just endless scrolling on Facebook or shopping or just doing, I mean, I still wear makeup. Sometimes I still, I do like to shop. I enjoy going out to eat, but it's not my, my focus. Now my focus is like you said, collecting books on orthodoxy and um, trying to remember to do the prayer all day long. And it's just been so yeah. liberating. And that's, that's something I really want to do with this channel is to show people that Christianity is actually really cool and liberating. And um, it's not, and you get a And you get a nice beard like this. If you're a guy, <laughs> you do it right. Yeah. Pure gift well, from God. Right here. I, I won't be able to experience the beard. No, and we don't, and we don't want you. We don't want you to. <laughs> But there are just so many cool things in the community. The Orthodox community online is just so much fun. And I mean, we're, we're having a pretty serious chat, but your lives that you do with your community are hilarious. You have such a great sense of humor and everybody's just lighthearted. It's not like this really serious thing. Like we must no, repent and we must tell all the sinners that they're going to hell and it's it's just mm. you know it's like yeah that's that's my next live stream my next live stream how to beat people over the head with the bible until they repent oh triumphalism oh yeah oh yeah 
<laughs> no, I mean, it, it is important, but if we take ourselves too seriously, I think that's, mm -hmm. there's a danger in that too. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I think all you guys are, you, you all have your own type of humor and, um, you, you teach us with your streams, but they're also very entertaining and binge well, thank you. That is, that's what, <laughs> that's what I'm going for. I'm glad to hear it's working. So I know we only have a little bit of time left. I want to make sure I get through all my questions. Um, sure. Oh, I really want to talk about masculinity mm. and patriarchy. And, you know, again, coming from the goddessy mindset that I lived in for so long, patriarchy was this really bad thing that we needed mm. to stand up against and fight. And um, based homeschool mom is coming on my show tomorrow. I'm interviewing oh, good. her. I can't wait. Oh, good. We're, yeah, she's we're great. Gonna, yeah, we're going to spend most of the time talking about that. But I do want to, from a man's perspective, an orthodox man's perspective, I would love to talk a little bit about the importance of patriarchy and how the orthodox church just has the most incredible patriarchal mm. Um, framework, or I'm, I'm not even sure how to describe it, but it's one of the reasons I chose orthodoxy is because our world does need the empowered masculine man. And um, I just want to exalt that with my channel. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, you know, we all, we often hear in our in our culture, if women led the world, there would be no more wars. Oh, so yeah. Chris Rock, Chris Rock had a funny joke. He said, if women ran the world, there would be no more wars, just a bunch of countries not talking to each other right now. <laughs> okay. So our culture, um, there's a number of different idols that our, our culture wants us to follow, right? We have uh, women, certain racial ideologies, certain political ideologies, all kinds of stuff we don't have to get too deeply into. Mm -hmm. um, but this exaltation of, of really a fallen woman is really what it is, because mm -hmm. we have incredible, beautiful, sanctified women like the Theotokos, the mother of God, uh, that's a fantastic role model for, for all women, and in some sense for men, not in the feminine sense, but in the sense of you know, her humility and her piety. It's not like the world lacks these incredible female role models, but they're elevating the ones that are not only trying to act like men, thereby turning their backs on their own femininity. I have a hard time saying that word, femininity. <laughs> um, but they're all, but they're acting like the worst man too. And I think that's something that maybe they're they're not really realizing. Like when you see these women that are foul-mouthed and aggressive and barking like bulldogs at people and chopping off their hair, they're acting like the the a horrible caricature of the worst kind of man. So it's not like they're even trying to be a good man, right? They're trying to be a bad man, um, turning their back on, on the whole idea of beauty and goodness and truth in the first place. Now, in God's eyes, men and women are equally sinful and equally um, able to be saved. Like there's no real difference between the genders in that sense, in God's eyes, in the sense of the state of our souls. What there is though, is a different order for how society ought to be run due to the specific differences between men and women. There are some things women are much better at than men. I happen to think women tend to be much more effective communicators than men. Whether, whether what they're trying to communicate is a good thing or not, they're certainly more effective at getting the outcome they want through the vehicle of talking and, and communication, whether it's with the words or the body language and the eye movements. Like Women are communicating on more layers, more levels than men are, generally speaking. And that's very important in certain ways. Men are much better at compartmentalizing and at not letting our emotions affect decisions. 
and at seeing the bigger picture of things, whereas women are more detail-oriented. So you don't want to have someone who's really detail-oriented but can't see the bigger picture as well or might let emotions affect their decisions in charge of things, right? So God has created this order of these separate spheres for men and women that help both people more. And I think that's what a lot of women are fighting against is not realizing the patriarchy probably helped them even more than it helped men. You know, they see it as men being in charge. It's there to glorify men and oppress women. But these women have never had to be responsible for groups of people. It's actually really, it's quite a burden to be to be the leader. It's not, it's not a, a glorified, exalted thing. Mm-hmm. It's hard yeah. because then other people's outcomes you're responsible for and you have to keep track of all these different factors and you know, figure out how the pieces fit together. So the same way that men tend to excel more than women at like engineering or computer programming, things that involve putting different pieces together in an elaborate way to build a machine, society itself and the church could be seen as a machine made of many different pieces. And the male brain happens to be better oriented towards doing that successfully. So someone has to be in charge, right? You can't have anarchy. It, it doesn't work. It's never worked, either in the church, society, or the home. Right. Just like the military. What if there was no generals in the military? Well, they wouldn't know what to do, right? So there's somebody there that's in charge simply because we need that principle of unity and leadership to keep things moving successfully. So it's the same way in the home. St. John Chrysostom has a great book that I reviewed years ago on this channel called On Marriage and Family Life, where he uses this exact analogy of saying the military has to have a leader to be effective, just like the home has to have the man as leader to be effective. This is not to say the woman is your slave or just like an object for you to shove around and you know throw out when you want a new one. She's there to be your lieutenant, right? Your trusted advisor. I like the whole captain and first mate on a ship example. Like the man is the captain that decides where the ship is going. And the first mate offers her counsel, her advice and her input uh, for the captain to make a better decision because the decision that he makes affects both of them or more if there's children, right? So, but the final say ends with the man and part of uh, part of the martyrdom that a woman has to undergo or should be undergoing if he's living properly in an Orthodox marriage is accepting the will of her husband and his decisions, even if she thinks that he's wrong, right? If she's offered something that she thinks is correct and the husband has taken that advice and decided, no, I'm gonna do it this way, Part of her martyrdom and death to self is to accept that part of his role as the leader is to make those decisions, even if it's not what she wants. And then the really hard part is if it turns out he was wrong and she was right to not rub it in his face. That's the second part of the death to self, right? Whereas for the man, the death to self is, I don't want to deal with this. I want to go play video games right now. Oh, but my wife is having a moment and she's emotional and needs needs me to listen to her or comfort her through whatever it is that's going on. That's not what I want to be doing in that moment, but it's what my partner needs. And then once this is resolved, then the family can be a unit again. So God has separated the world into a hierarchy. Everything is a hierarchy, right? There's the Trinity at the top. There's all the the three orders of angels. Um, We know that there are angels in charge of nations, right? The Bible talks about this specific churches have angels watching them and patron saints. Whole nations have angels in charge of them. The church has a patriarch, which is the highest ranking bishop, which is just the highest ranking priest, uh, because someone has to be in charge to resolve conflicts and to make decisions. Democracy doesn't work. It's not, I mean, it's not real to begin with, but the idea of everyone having equal say in everything just doesn't work for a large number of reasons. Firstly and foremost, because truth is not determined by a majority or a consensus. It's determined by what's objectively true, right? Which is in our cases to say God. Very important right there. That's so yeah. important. 
Yeah. So if, if 90% of people believe something that's not true, why should they get to impose their will on the 10% of people who are correct? Just because there's more of them that agree with it? Well, that's that's kind of silly. So the home is like a little church. The family is a little church. Uh, the church is a big family. And then, of course, our really big family includes God and the saints and the entire heavenly host of angels. And every step of the way, there's a hierarchy there. I mean, Dante in the Divine Comedy, not that he's orthodox, not that he was necessarily explicating a perfectly orthodox version of theology. I mean, we see as, as he goes through the celestial spheres, different ranks of angels, which the Orthodox would agree with, at least in that sense of the, of the word, um, because that's just how God has ordered the universe. So if men are placed above women in a, in a sense of uh, directing groups, that's not to say women are less than in, a, in a, like an ontological sense. It's just that this works better. And this is very obvious if you look at, at the world and the countries that women are in charge of. You know, We have all these childless women in charge of countries that are just getting destroyed because they have no stake in the future. They, they don't have kids. They don't really mm -hmm. care what happens. And the Bible says, I, I want to say it's in Isaiah, uh, that one of the signs of a country that has turned its back on God is that women and children will, will rule over them. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is not to say that women are of less worth in God's eyes. It's just that they have a role. We have a role. Both roles involve death to self and martyrdom, making decisions for the best of the other person. And when we both live those roles properly, we are equally glorified and sanctified by God. And then we get to be saints someday if we all do it, if we do this all properly. Um, so patriarchy is a word that's been very deliberately charged with certain emotional content in our culture. Like you're supposed to have a <gasps> reaction when you hear it, right? You're supposed yeah. to associate it with negativity, with oppression and tyranny and domination and all this stuff. Now, fallen man can, of course, with his leadership, do horrible things with it, just like fallen woman with her emotional and communicative skills can be very destructive, right? So the, the idea is you have to have the proper order, and also the person there has to be godly, because a man that's in charge of a family or a church who's not a godly man is going to lead a whole group into destruction and bring all of that down on his own head. So everyone, I mean, if everyone is repenting and trying to become a Christian, um, then we'll, we'll see how this all works out. And women, when they're in a submissive role to their man, if he's a good man, a godly and a strong man, that's also very important, a masculine, strong man, they're just so much happier. Look at look at these miserable harpies on TV that are they're, they're in so much pain. You can see it. You can see it in their eyes. You can hear it in their voice. They're miserable people because the female soul understands that it's not supposed to be in charge of the man, yeah. that they're supposed to be submiss submitting to male energy, that penetrative kind of energy, in a proper way and if they refuse to do it because of their pride then they're just going to lead themselves and their their the women around them into misery and the really sad part is how many younger women they've influenced who can't discern the misery of these older women telling them to be feminists they see their outcomes with the chopped hair and the childlessness and the drug abuse and the alcohol abuse and they can't discern many of them can't discern maybe i shouldn't go down this path that this older woman is, is telling me to go down you know you go to an orthodox church and you look at the the humble women with their hair covered and everything you look at our female saints at theotokos these women are infinitely more fulfilled yes. than any feminist has ever been absolutely well i about a year ago i wrote i'm not on facebook anymore but i used to write a lot on facebook and i wrote a post about you know, it was, it was not um, obvious. I was trying to be subtle with my writing, but it was all about how becoming Christian and reconsidering my beliefs about feminism actually saved my marriage. 
and mm. it got so many shares. It got shared by people I didn't even know and so many comments wow. and likes. And there were no, um, I guess the people who disagreed with me or were triggered by it didn't comment or anything. It was just so well received. And I, another reason I'm starting this channel and my Instagram as well is to really just invite women to kind of reconsider their ideas about feminism. And I'm talking about neo-feminism too. There's, you know, then the, then you get in the whole argument like, oh, well, would you rather have been like how it was 200 years ago? And, you know, yeah, in some ways that was better. And in some ways it wasn't, yeah. but I'm talking you know, about- mo Most women did not want the vote when the suffragettes were going yeah, around. Most I, women I said, hey, dummies, you're, you're ruining this. We have a really good thing going here. <laughs> yeah. What are well, you doing? Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing I wanted to say was everything you just explained is actually really, really good for women. Very, very good for women. They, it's just that it's so many don't see that yet. And, but I, I see a lot of women online, at least I follow a lot of women on Instagram who are really talking about this. I think it's so important. And um, it's great to get your perspective. And I hope to get more ortho men on my show so that we can talk about it some more. But um, there's only a couple sure. minutes can I, left. Can I, ask you, yeah. can I ask you a question? Oh, of course. I know it's your interview, but it's relevant it's to what you just said. Have you ever seen, I don't remember her name. I think she's, her blog is called The Transformed Wife. You ever I seen that lady? Her. Yes, I follow her. Yep. She's got a lot of pretty powerful stuff kind of yes. along this same vein. Yes, she does. And um, yeah, the feminine not feminist hashtag mm. is um it's picking up steam for sure good yeah. amen may, may so, god will it yes yes and the name of my show at least at this time this it's august of 2021 i don't know if i'm going to change it but the one that came to me that feels great at this moment is um devotional hearts so it's it's talking about the noose, which a lot of people have never heard that term. So I wanted to use something that's more obvious, but um, can you leave my audience with something that they could read or think about to um, help them to have more vision from the heart and be able to soften their heart, turn away from the world, turn toward God, and um, just have more of a life of prayer and um, gratitude to God and, and submission to him and devotion to him. Sure. And it's going to be kind of a heavy, tough teaching that I myself am experiencing in a great degree this week with all the, the pain, but also the, the Christ-like uh, grace that comes with us. So when you genuinely desire a pure heart, God will send you all the situations that bring up all the darkness in your heart, all your passions so that you can see what they are and learn how to repent through them and work through them. Now, it's very, very easy to live off by yourself somewhere and think that you're very pure and holy because you're not facing any situations that actually show you what you really are, what's really going on inside of you. But when you, when you genuinely seek the purity, you will get all this persecution and situations, whether it's just in your own mind, if you're an anxious person or from outside of you, outer external situations or both, that will give you your pure heart that you want through trials and tribulations. Like St. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
uh, because the only way to get a pure heart is to figure out the ways in which it's currently impure and then repent weeping tears of repentance i mean that's that's the best spiritual state to be in is crying tears at your own sin there's nothing that's more purifying than that in a certain sense it's almost like a mini baptism where you're being purified by water in this case water coming from your eyes inspired by the holy spirit because you can't acknowledge you're a sinner except by the holy spirit and it's it's a gift from god when you see your own sin it's painful you know we all like to think that we're better and holier and wiser than we actually are god it's a gift from god when he shows you how much darkness is in your heart and then when you weep with repentance and you go to confession it's a slow process you know it's a lifelong process really but God, God is a doctor and the church is a hospital. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the doctor, he says, how can I help you? And you say, nothing. I'm perfectly fine. Nothing's wrong with me. He's going to say, thank you for your money. Get out of my office and go home. You have to know what your symptoms are to present to the doctor for healing, which is what God is doing by showing you your darkness. Like the saying goes, if you pray for patience, God will send you a traffic jam. He will send you situations that bring it up so that you can bring that to your father confessor in church and have something to cry over in the services or when you're back at your house. And as you do that over time, um, it's kind of like if, the, if your heart is like a, a hard stone and your tears are like drops of water. If you think about if you put a, a hard rock under a faucet with just dripping one drop of water at time, there's no like one instant where that hardness of the rock is going to soften but as the water drips on it over and over and over and over and over eventually it will soften but it's a slow process it requires patience and you can't lose your zeal it's very very easy when god starts setting you these these tough situations to say okay i changed my mind i don't want to be pure please just let my life be easy and comfortable again mm -hmm. but if you do that then satan wins yeah. so what committing to christ is a serious thing it's a difficult thing I know people from my old internet marketing life that last time I checked was making, uh, there's one guy who was making $900,000 a month. That's much easier to do than to attain a pure heart in Christ. Mm -hmm. One of those things is much harder to do than the other one. Yeah. And you have a limited amount of time in life. So you kind of have yeah. to choose to some extent. Yeah. So that's that's my, my parting message is pray for a pure heart, expect the difficulties that come with God's answer to that request and be faithful and stay on the path and you will eventually get the reward that you're after that was amazing that was beautiful thank you so much for sharing and thank you for being my first guest I've had i'm so honored to be your inaugural guest yeah it just worked out so great i mean i posted your book on my instagram and oh, thank you. linked well that's how we met because i linked to you and then you wrote a comment and then I asked yeah. you to be on my show and here we are <laughs> and here we are like two days later <laughs> yeah you caught me at a good time I had about an hour today was my only available time this week so it worked oh, out well well I really appreciate it and um, I'm going to put the links to your book and all your things your podcast and I hope everybody who's watching this checks out your your channel and all the things. So is your, channel, well, thank is your you. channel on there too? I hope so. Oh, it's not, but it's brother Augustine. I okay. can, I can send you that in a minute. Okay. Link for the YouTube. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Allison. And to my audience, thank you for listening or watching today. I have so many amazing guests coming. So please subscribe, hit the bell, like, share. If you know any women, especially who are considering becoming Orthodox or maybe 
just interested and want to learn more, please share my channel with them. And my Instagram is a devotional heart with a period between each word. And that's about it for today. And I'll see you guys soon. Bye. Oh.